So I'll, I'll read Psalm 51 to us, and then we'll pray, uh, and then we'll look at it together. So it's Psalm 51, and it says here in the Bible, in the text, it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And David then says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from all my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O Lord, you who are God, my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You did not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You did not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered at your altar. Let's just pray before we dive in. Lord God, thank you for this sermon series from the book of Psalms. And as we look at this very famous prayer of repentance, I ask that we'd all go away from here today with a renewed understanding of your love and mercy and what you have done and what you are doing for us. Amen. Well, let me start off by asking you then, have you ever got to a point in your life where you've done something of which you are justifiably deeply ashamed? Where you just think to yourself, when I look at that, all I can say is, I just just can't believe I did it. I just can't believe I did that. And for many of us, I guess this feeling of deep, genuine guilt, it it doesn't actually happen very often. Probably the reason for that is that we're very quick to explain away or excuse the things we've done wrong. We we say, look, we're not too bad after all because there are all these good reasons. But, I mean, perhaps for some of us, there are at least a few times where we do come face to face with our own character. Um, My favourite Christian author wrote a book, C.S. Lewis, called The Problem of Pain. And he writes there about the tendency of men and women to explain away their own sins and failings and pretend to themselves they're not quite so bad after all. And then he goes on to say this. He says this. He says, now at the moment which a man feels real guilt, moments too rare in our lives, all of those blasphemies vanish away. Much, we may feel, can be excused the human infirmities, but, but not this. Not this incredibly mean and ugly action which none of our friends would have done, which even a thoroughgoing rotter such as so-and-so would, not have, been, would have been ashamed of, and which we would not for the whole world allow to be published. At that moment, 
we really do know that our character, as revealed in his action, is and ought to be hateful to all good men, and if there are powers above men to them also. Let me ask you again, have you found yourself ever in that situation? I can tell you I have. And that's where David finds himself when writing this psalm. We heard the story read from 2 Samuel 11. Thanks to Emma for doing that. David stays behind when he should have gone to war. He sees a lady bathing. Does he look away respectfully? No, he gazes at her. He lusts after her. He has her brought to him. He commits adultery. Then she falls pregnant. And so he tries to cover up. He brings her husband back for the front lines and he sort of tries to encourage him to sleep with his wife so they can pass the child off as a legitimate child. So no one need know what David had done. He's trying to cover up. Cover up doesn't work. So he goes to plan B and he has the husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed. And if that's not bad enough, we read in 1 Chronicles 11 verse 41 that Uriah was actually one of David's mighty warriors. He supported him both before and during his reign. And the commentators say that in all probability, this would have been one of the men that went with David when he was fleeing from Saul. David, in all probability, owed Uriah his life. They were comrades in arms. It is difficult to imagine a more brutal betrayal. And... Of course, in human terms, David's got away with it, hasn't he? Time had passed. Bathsheba had married him. At least nine months has passed because the son's been born. All is well. Nobody knows. And then you see at the end of 2 Samuel um, verse 11, with a, some degree of understatement, perhaps, the author says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Yeah, probably quite a bit. Now, just before we dive into the psalm itself and look at David's prayer of repentance, I do want to say this. Some of you might be saying, well, actually... I've never done anything as bad as that. I've never committed adultery. I've certainly never committed murder. I'm never going to, so this doesn't really apply to me. And if that's you, then I want to say gently, but perhaps firmly, that you're kidding yourself. And the reason I say that is because David here was God's appointed king. Remember what he'd done as a child. He had killed the giant Goliath when everyone else was completely scared. He had been blessed repeatedly by God. He had proven that he trusted in God through the most terrible situations. He had proven that he was a man of righteousness and a godly man. And yet he ended up here. So if he could end up in this situation, so could any of us. Started with idleness, and then a look, then sex in the wrong context, then murder when the cover-up fails. Cover-up always seems to be what's worse, isn't it, when things go wrong? And I would suggest that all of us are perfectly capable of walking down that road and ending up somewhere just as bad. So what do we do? Coming back, what do you do if you found yourself having done something terrible of which you are rightly ashamed? Or, conversely, if you haven't actually done that yet, if you have come to the understanding that your character is such that that is nevertheless something you would be very capable of, what do you do when you come face to face with your character? Well, the answer is that you repent and you ask God for help. And Psalm 51 is, of course, one of the most famous examples of godly repentance in the Bible. So, let's look at the psalm. We haven't actually looked at the psalm yet. Let's do that. How do we repent? And my first point is David appeals to God's mercy and compassion. See that from verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Why? According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. God's mercy, his unfailing love, his great compassion. And that is the only basis on which he can expect pardon. So look, I mean, what does he not do? He doesn't say, look, God, remember what I've done in the past. I screwed up now, but remember what I've done in the past. Remember 
how I killed the giant Goliath when I was just a child. Remember how I had King Saul at my mercy when he was trying to kill me. And yet I spared his life because I didn't want to lay a hand on the Lord's appointed. Look at what I've done in the... Didn't do that. He doesn't make excuses. Either. He says, oh Lord, you know, the pressure of ministry work is just so much. It's difficult to understand for anyone else to understand. These people that I'm trying to lead are, are really hard. And Bathsheba tempted me. He doesn't do that either. I think, well, maybe I'm just talking for myself here, but I think often when we think we're being contrite, you know, what we're doing is we're saying to God, sorry, but, sorry, but, I've done wrong. Yeah, I've done wrong, but there are all these extenuating circumstances. If we do that, it, it won't work. Tim Keller, a famous preacher in New York, he says, oftentimes people think they're repenting. What they're actually doing is complaining. They're just complaining. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry I did this, but, you know, I was tired and my wife was unreasonable and this happened. And this. you're not repenting, you're just complaining to God. And if you're doing that, it won't work. We appeal to God on the basis of his compassion and his mercy and his love poured out on people who in no way deserve it. A simple, heartfelt plea to God. I've messed this up big time, God. Please, Lord, will you make it right? So firstly, then, David appeals to God's mercy and God's compassion. Secondly, David then considers his own sin. You can see that in um, verses 3 to 4. For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Well, well, that seems to make sense. But then what about verse 4? Against you and you only have I sinned. And my immediate thought reading that was, well, if, I mean, Uriah wasn't around. Uriah was dead. But if he'd been around to hear this, he might have been forgiven for interjecting. Well, what about me? Do you not think you might have sinned against me a bit, you know, as well? So what does David mean when he says against you and you only have I sinned? I'm not sure I've got a brilliant, I can try and answer as best I can. One point to remember is that the only reason that it's a sin to harm people to serve yourself is that God created that other person in his own image and loves them and wants the best for them. It's only a sin because God said it's a sin. It's not necessarily a sin, is it, to chop down a tree and to use the wood for your own purposes. I mean, you know, I mean, it might be if it's in Himily Fields or something like that and you don't own the tree. But I mean, it's not necessarily a sin to chop down the tree and to use its wood for yourself. It is always a sin to chop down a person to use that person to get ahead or to serve your own um, desires and pleasures because that person is made in the image of God, belongs wholly, completely to God and is loved by God. So that's one point. It's only a sin because of the person is made in the image of God. still doesn't fully answer the question. I mean, why did David say, against you and you primarily have I sinned? Which would have been probably more accurate. Um, and I think the best answer I can give that is probably that linguistic nuance was not top of his agenda when he was writing. I mean, he was in anguish, and he was writing um, an anguished repentance for what he had done. He probably wasn't trying to get all the language right. What he could do, perhaps, is he could see that God was a God of compassion and mercy. You can see that from verses 1 and 2. And I wonder if David here could just perceive God's righteous and burning anger over the way he had treated Uriah, God's servant. Now, we didn't have time to read 2 Samuel 12, but if, I would encourage you to read it in your, your own time if you can do that later on today. He'd just been called out for this sin in the most spectacular way uh, by the prophet Nathan focusing on the way he had treated God's servant. Um, and I think there's a truth here which we're all well aware of, I think, but we would do well to remember. 
And, and it's this. When we hurt or exploit other people, the Lord sees that, and the Lord primarily is deeply angered by it. Um, I've been enjoying um, music recently by a guy called Andrew Peterson. He popped up on my Spotify list. They said, oh, why don't you listen to this? Oh, I'm really enjoying it, actually. And I've got something called the Andrew Peterson Mix. So, yeah, um, go and put it on Spotify when you get back if you're interested in guitar music. It's great. Anyway, he's got a song called Rise Up. Uh, and it's got these lyrics in it. He sings, If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not their father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? And the songwriter's pointing out here that the Lord is angered when his children are mistreated, and he will repay when he returns. And the things we do in secret that we think no one knows or sees about, as David did here, well, the Lord sees. And he is angered when his children are wronged. Let me give you a modern example. The statistics say that around 70% of church-going men view pornography on a regular basis. I'm guessing on those stats that some people in this room will be tempted in that way, if we are we do well to remember that the Lord sees the young men and the young women exploited in those images as his children whom he loves. To paraphrase those song lyrics, would not their father see what we do in private? Would not his anger burn? Will he not repay those exploiting his children in the day of his return? To come back to the text, it seems to me that when David says, against you and against you only have I sinned, it seems to me that this is hyperbolic, that is exaggerated poetic language which just recognises that in wronging those who belong to God, he has offended God deeply and that the offence and the anger of God on behalf of his wronged children was far and away the most important issue he had to deal with. I don't think he was saying that he hadn't wronged Uriah. But as before, when we look at this, we see David offers no excuse or no justification he simply acknowledges that God's judgment is right and God is justified when he judged. That's full. I think he goes beyond this specific transgression. Well, you can see that perhaps from verse 3. I know my transgressions. Well, you could read that as there being multiple transgressions in this sorry tale. But you see it more clearly, don't you, from verse 5. Sorry, I was sinful from birth. Now, personally, I, I don't think... This is necessarily a theological proof text for the doctrine of original sin. It might be, but I don't think it is. I think, I think this is, again, hyperbolic, poetic language, which is simply David saying, oh, it just seems that everything about me is flawed and sinful, and it seems always to have been this way, Lord. Uh, C.S. Lewis, again, from The Problem of Pain, he says this, We never tell the whole truth about ourselves. We may confess ugly facts, even the meanest cowardice or the shabbiest, the most prosaic impurity. But the tone is false. The very act of confessing, infinitesimally hypocritical grant, a dash of humour, all of this tends to dissociate the sins you are confessing from your very self. Nobody could guess how familiar and, in a sense, congenial to your soul these things were. Down there in the dreaming inner warmth, they struck no such discordant note. They were not nearly so odd and detachable from the rest of you as they seem when they are turned into words. He goes on to summarise it. This persistent, lifelong inner murmur of spite, jealousy, purience, greed and self-complacence simply won't go into words. 
Yeah, well, there is some truth in that, but I do think King David has a fair go of putting it into words here in verses 3 to 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So David, he appeals to God's compassion and mercy, and he considers and confesses his sins. And what happens next? Well, then there is a plea, isn't there? Verse 7, for restoration. There is a plea for God to make it right. You see that? Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, make me whiter than snow. And let's just spend a bit of time looking at the imagery here. Whiter than snow. There is nothing left of our sins once God has cleaned them away. They are taken away completely. We are left whiter than snow. This reference to being whiter than snow it appears a couple more times in the Old Testament. You don't need to turn to this unless you particularly want to. Um, but I will look at them because I think it will be good to look at the imagery here. Isaiah 1 verse 18 is one um, place where it pops up. And there the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And the Lord says, come now, let's settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. They are red like crimson. They shall be as wool. And then in Daniel 7 verses 9, the prophet Daniel sees God himself. He sees the Ancient of Days. God takes his seat in the throne room and begins to judge the nation. And, and Daniel says this, he says, The thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days, that's God himself, took his seat. And when he describes God, he says, His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. And it seems to me that what we are supposed to see from these Old Testament references is that when God cleans us, he does a thorough job. He gives us, in fact, a righteousness which is like that of God himself. He makes us as pure and as holy and as glorious and as excellent as, as God himself, as the Ancient of Days. And that's a great thing. Well, another point to take from this passage, it's a bit obscure, but it's worth looking at, is how is this done? So David says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Now, if you're new to biblical scholarship, I imagine you must be thinking, what's with the hyssop? I think mean, hyssop is a plant. It cleanses me with a plant. And I'll be clean. Why not cleanse me with detergent and I'll be clean? What is with the hyssop? Why allude to a plant in the context of cleansing for sin? Well, I mean, the answer is, is it links to other passages in the Bible. Now, one is Exodus 12, 21 to 30, and that's the Passover. Now, the Passover, if you remember back to your Old Testament, that was God's judgment on Egypt. God came to judge everyone living in Egypt for their sins and to kill the firstborn of every family. No, everyone, not just the Egyptians, everyone was under God's judgment. But the Israelites, that's God's chosen people, were given a way to escape the judgment of God. And they were told to kill a lamb and to plant its blood on the door of their house so the lamb would die in place of their son. And the, and, the, and the passage is here, verses 21 to 30, Exodus 12. It says, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Here it is. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Right, now we fast forward many thousands of years in salvation history and we see the Lord Jesus Christ, described by John the Baptist, last of the great prophets, as the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. 
And when he was indeed sacrificed, when he hung there on the cross, dying and rejected by his father, we're told by um, the Apostle John um, that he said, I thirst, and they lifted up a sponge of wine vinegar on a stalk specifically of the hyssop plant. That detail is there just before he died. I hope this isn't too obscure. It does seem to me that we are supposed to see these connections. seems to me that David speaks prophetically when he says, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop features in the Old Testament Passover ceremony. Hyssop features in the death of the Lamb of God, Jesus himself. When we read this with a knowledge of the entire Bible, it is clear, isn't it, how our cleansing is achieved. Of course, we can see this much more clearly than David could. Um, we didn't read this in 2 Samuel, but, but after David repented, um, he was told by the prophet Dathan, the Lord has taken away your sin. He didn't see what that cost the Lord. We do. Hebrews 9 verse 26. He, that is Christ, has appeared once for all at the culmination of the age to do away with sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. If you ever doubt that God loves you and that God would do all he can to live in proper relationship with you, I would encourage you to go back to Scripture I won't read this all out, but go back to Scripture. Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the account is in all of the Gospels. You can see him there in anguish. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he says to his father. You see him there begging his father to find another way. Can you deal with this problem of human sin in some other way so I don't have to drink this cup? And then you see him remaining obedient to death and to the cross so that we can be cleansed. The Lord has taken away your sin, David. You are not going to die. What, really, Nathan? Just like that? Yeah, just like that. It's free for David. It's free for us. It wasn't cheap. Rico Tice for all sells Langham Place. He keeps saying grace is free to us, but it's not cheap. It costs the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It costs his rejection by his father on the cross. We see it and we rejoice. Okay, where are we now? Fourth, repentance should lead to inward transformation. It's not just about cleansing. Now, where do I get that from? You can see that from verses 10 to 12. There seems to be more than just cleansing here. And as you can see that, David asked for a steadfast spirit within him. He's looking for inward transformation to live a life worthy of his salvation, verse 12. Um, and the point I want to make, I am going to get faster, but we're not going to go through the whole part of this speech, by the way. We'll be here forever. Um, but I just want to sort of look at this, because we always do what we want to do. When we sin, it's because we want to sin. We do what we want to do. And we have to want to live a pure life. We have to want to do it. We have to ask God for a pure heart and a steadfast spirit. You see, otherwise, we're just going to get caught up in a cycle of sin, any meaningless repentance, sin, contrition, sin, and repeat, 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 repeat. You're not actually going forward. You know, our character isn't actually changing at all. Um, the great Saint Augustine, one of the great church fathers, he very famously confessed he'd effectively be praying for years. Lord, make me chaste, that is, sexually pure, but not quite yet. I quite like the idea of following you, Lord, but I'm also quite keen on the pleasures I can get from sexual immorality. So make me chaste, but not quite yet. And if you're praying that, it's not going to work. We need a steadfast spirit within us, a spirit willing to follow and imitate God himself. And we need to see our sin as God sees it, to hate the sin itself 
not just the consequences of it. I sinned, I've messed up, I hate the fact that my life's messed up. Yeah, great, we've got to learn to hate the sin itself, not just the consequences of the sin. Because that's all very well, how do we get that? How do we get the pure? We just ask for it, as David's done here. Create in me a pure heart, O Lord, renew a steadfast spirit within me. It doesn't happen overnight. This is what the theologians call sanctification, becoming more like Christ. But if you are struggling with some area of sin, and we all will be, commit yourself to setting off on a journey which will take you to a place where you're completely free of that sin and look forward to being free of the sin. Don't keep looking back thinking, oh, I just wish I could just, no, no. You've got to look forward to being free of the sin. Ask God's help to get you there. And then if you stumble on that journey, which is more than probable, then get up if necessary with the help of your brothers and sisters and keep going. But the point is you need to commit to that journey and you need God's help to do that. Okay, I'm going to start wrapping up. What should we take away from this passage? And then when we've done that, we can look very quickly at the, uh, the, the second half of the psalm. I hope we've seen that there is no sin, there really is no sin which God can't put right from you. It doesn't matter what you've done. God can make it right, and God can make you white as snow. And we've been singing this for decades. Christians have been singing this for decades. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And we see and we rejoice in God's character, his mercy, his compassion, and his work of salvation, which we see more clearly than David, where Jesus died on the cross so we can become white as snow. Cleanse me with hyssop. What David was really saying was cleanse me with blood, the blood of Christ, so that we can become white as snow. And then we can repent our sins, as David repented in verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you're right in your verdict and justified when you're judged. And if we do that, then that should take us to where David gets in verses 13 to 17. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O Lord, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. So there's a longing, isn't there, to share God's salvation with other people, so they can also turn back to him. And then David sings of God's righteousness in verse 14. The very characteristic of God which condemns him has become a source of praise on David's lips. And so perhaps as we finish, as God's chosen people, we finish, chosen forgiven people, I should say, by echoing the words there of verse 15. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Amen.